This morning we're beginning a, a new four-part uh, sermon series that will take us right up to Christmas. Uh, we've titled this, His Name Shall Be Called. We're, we're going to be exploring the meaning and the power of the names uh, uh, for the promised Messiah given by the Spirit through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And this morning we're going to look at the background and the broader prophecy in Isaiah 9, and then we're going to examine the first name given in verse 6, Wonderful Counselor. Uh, so <clears throat> this is prophetic material. I invite you to apply your minds this morning. Um, the, the, the preaching may be pathetic, but the passage is prophetic. So um, I hope that you'll apply your mind. And if you're able, please stand and let's read this morning's text together. <clears throat> But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. You may be seated. Every prophetic scripture responds in some way to a problem. And so let's look at the context and understand that Isaiah is addressing a problem in Judah. A problem in Judah. The prophet Isaiah, eight centuries before Christ, prophesied to a people without, without having to consult the evening news, were well aware that conditions were dire. They were beset by war. They were mired in social and political distress. They were caught in a web of spiritual darkness. In short, there was darkness surrounding them. And there was darkness in equal or even greater proportion within them. And in Isaiah's opening words in chapter 1, he paints a bleak picture. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. 
Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, of people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Well, that's happy news, isn't it? And in the ensuing chapters, the prophet calls out in greater detail how this was so. In chapter 1, the nation was rife with financial corruption and social injustice. In chapter 2, there was oppression of the poor and the powerless. There was superstition and materialism, idolatry and arrogance. In chapter 3, the prophet points to a fundamental crisis in leadership, a preoccupation with sexuality, a public unashamed flaunting of sin, a withholding of justice for the poor and the oppressed. In chapter 5, he addresses their economic injustice, their obsession with alcohol and drugs, and with every form of entertainment. In chapter 8, we learn that they were caught up in occultism, spiritism, consulting the dead, listening to lies. And that's just the result of a cursory reading. And one would have to be blind indeed to fail to notice some quite clear parallels, wouldn't they, between conditions in Judah in the 8th century before Christ Conditions in the United States of America in the 21st century, in the year of our Lord. The prophet makes clear that the people of the southern kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem were consistently, repeatedly confronted with the truth. They kept on hearing, he says, but they didn't understand They kept on seeing, yet they didn't perceive. And instead, Isaiah said, their hearts were dull, their spiritual ears were heavy, their spiritual eyes were blind. Their guides, their teachers, their prophets, their rabbis had misled them. They had been deceived. And despite God's repeated efforts to call them back to the truth, the light just never went on. It just never went on in their hearts and in their minds. In chapter 8, verse 20, the prophet says of them, they have no dawn, only darkness. And in that condition, the prophet concludes at the close of chapter 8, they will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And it's into that darkness that the light of God in the person of Jesus Christ would begin to shine. And so from the problem in Judah, the prophet turns to the promise in Jesus promise in Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 9, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. 
In the former time, he brought into contempt, or some translations read, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And notice that word, but, in chapter 9, verse 1. In nearly every English translation, the word used here is either but or nevertheless. And in that one word, Isaiah announces that radical change is is coming. There's a pivot that is taking place. The gloom that, that hangs over the nation is going to be lifted. We're going to see that in a moment. But before that, I want you to see two things. The first is that as Isaiah prophesies, he is speaking in the past tense of events still in the future. That is, he's speaking of events that had not yet come to pass as if they had. There's a label for this kind of literature, a big theological word, but it may be easier to remember that when I tell you that some scholars call this the prophetic perfect Tense. I like that. The prophetic perfect tense. That is, the prophet is so persuaded, he is so sure of the truth that the Holy Spirit is revealing to him and through him, that he can speak with absolute confidence of things yet to come as if they had already occurred. And we have a, we have an expression in our Everyday language, it's as good as done. It's a done deal. The second thing I want you to see is Isaiah's statement here that points us back to something that has happened in the past and then forward to something that is yet to happen in the future. The the second sentence in verse 1 begins, In the former time, in the former time, in the past, he brought into contempt, that is, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's most likely a reference to the fact that in about 733 B.C., in Isaiah's lifetime, the Assyrians under Tiglath-Pileser III invaded and occupied parts of northern Israel, including the lands apportioned to the Israelite tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. Painful moment in Israel's history. The event is recorded in 2 Kings fifteen twenty nine, but it is these lands of Zebulun and Naphtali which were the first to bear the brunt of the invasion. Uh, that which were the first to bear the brunt of the invasion that Isaiah says would be the first then to see the glory of the light that God would shine on Israel. Uh, Again, the latter part of chapter 9, verse 1. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, Matthew, in his gospel, records the fulfillment of this prophecy. And it's worth noting, now when he, that is Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, 
on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the beginning of the light dawning in the darkness and the gloom of our lives is the coming of Jesus. And our God is a God who comes to us in our darkness. And in the person of Jesus Christ, he graciously enters into our darkness. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So the arrival of Jesus Christ, Isaiah wanted them to know, would initiate a movement of radical change. And Isaiah points to four aspects of that change. The first is from gloom to glory, as we have just seen in in verse 1. Notice that this movement Jesus begins is also from darkness to light. And we see that in chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So that into the darkness of deceit and defeat and discontentment and depression, Jesus shines the light of truth, the light of the gospel, the light of life. And the change and the movement, the transformation that comes about when Jesus shows up is also a movement from anguish to joy. Notice verse 1 with me again. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And then verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And the net effect of the coming of the promised one into the world for, for those who receive him will be deliverance from distress combined with increased joy and gladness. Notice that statement, you have multiplied the nation. You might recall that God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 22 said, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations, that offspring singular, not plural, in your offspring, in your seed, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And the Bible reveals that that offspring, that descendant, that promised seed of Abraham is none other than Jesus Christ. And when we fast forward to the end of the Bible in John's account of his vision of heaven in the book of Revelation, we see that the nation was multiplied miraculously and exponentially in Jesus, the Lamb of God. John wrote, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, a great multitude from every tribe and people and language. You've multiplied the nation. Isaiah also notes a movement from war to peace in verses 4 to 5. 
For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. On the day of Midian, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What was the day of Midian? Judah, at this time that Isaiah was prophesying, was under occupation under the boot of the Assyrians, as it had been under the boot of the Midianites in Gideon's day, in the time of the judges of Israel. If you've never read the book of Judges, take some time to read it. Great reading. But as you read there, you will learn that a man named Gideon, who became one of the judges of Israel, had an army of 32,000 men prepared to do battle against their enemy, the Midianites. But God had something else in mind. And God had Gideon reduce his force by 99.9% to just 300 against an enormously great Midianite army. And then with just those 300, Gideon won a massive, miraculous victory by the power of God. So when Isaiah writes, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. He's speaking to a miraculous victory. And Isaiah's prophecy then looks forward to a time when Messiah Jesus will reign over his kingdom, war will be no more, and the nation will be at peace. Burdens lifted, bonfire lit. And all of these things will take place for one reason, and one reason alone, Isaiah says, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Well, who is this child? Earlier, Isaiah prophesied in chapter 7, verse 14, that a virgin would conceive and bear a son, and she would call his name Emmanuel. The meaning of that name Emmanuel is God with us. Here in Isaiah 9, the prophet again informs us that these miraculous deliverances for God's people would come to pass because of the birth of a male child who would be born to them and given by God to them. And the son in 7.14, whose name is Emmanuel, and this child in chapter 9, whose name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, they are one and the same. The words of the prophet seem to have been echoed as well in the message of the angel to shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night in the hillsides near Bethlehem. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you, unto you, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Unto you is born this day. To us a child is born. To us a son is given. The angel said that the one who had been born was born unto them. He is born for them. Many years later, Jesus, in a conversation with his friend Nicodemus, 
characterize his coming into the world in these terms, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son a gift, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Sometimes we have this false conception that that God the Father is kind of the bad cop and Jesus the Son is kind of the good cop. But don't ever forget that it was the love of God the Father, the love of God for the world that caused him to give his only Son, to send him into the world in order that the world might be saved. Having said that a child is born to us, a son is given to us, Isaiah says his name then shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You might wonder, well, what does this phrase mean? I mean, we know that the the name that the angel told both Mary and Joseph to call their baby was Jesus which is the Greek form of the Hebrew Yeshua or Joshua. And then in 714, it's Emmanuel. I mean, how how many names does a guy need, really? It's possible, in fact, that there are actually five names here in Isaiah 9 and not four, and we'll see that in a moment. In Hebrew thought, as in many other cultures around the world to this day, the name by which someone was known most often expressed something of his or her character. So each of these names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, tells us something important about the nature and the character of Jesus. And what I hope to do with you in this series of messages during this month of Advent and Christmas is by way of a study of these names to reveal and to reflect upon the mystery and the wonder of who this child is who was born unto us, who was given to us that night in Bethlehem. So now to the first name. And you see, all of that was just background. You know, it's like, it's like the guy who waggles for hours on the tee before taking his first drive. But as I just said, it could be that there are actually five names here in verse 6 and not just four, specifically the designation Wonderful may be a standalone name. Some translations add a comma after wonderful, so it's worth investigating. Uh, To my awareness, there is just one other passage of Scripture in the Old Testament in which wonderful may be identified as a given name. Maybe. It's found in Judges 13, and, and it's an occasion for an appearance of the angel of the Lord. In Old Testament scripture, when the definite article the appears before the words angel of the Lord, it is most often an indication of God himself appearing in human form to human beings. It's referred to as a theophany, and 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 we shouldn't confuse it with an incarnation because that's not what it is, but it is an appearance of God in human form to human beings. Well, in Judges 13, we read that the angel of the Lord appeared to a man named Manoah and to his wife, who was barren. They were childless. And we never learn his wife's name, but the angel of the Lord appeared to announce to them 
that they were at last going to become parents. Their son, we came to know as Samson, who became one of the judges of Israel. Follow along, Judges 13, beginning at verse 15. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come to you, I my name, seeing it is wonderful. Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching, and when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. And now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. Now, notice what he says next. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. He realized that it was the angel of the Lord. He says, we have seen God. But his wife answered, if the Lord had meant to kill us, and wives are always the level-headed ones, right? He would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things, or now told us this. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And again, to Manoah's inquiry, what is your name? The angel of the Lord answered, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Now, either the angel was giving Manoah his name, or, and I think this is perhaps likely, that he was saying that his name was beyond understanding, which is the actual meaning of the Hebrew word. So let's briefly explore this word wonderful. The Hebrew word is Pele, not to be confused with the legendary Brazilian soccer player, although he was pretty wonderful to watch as well. A Hebrew dictionary gives uh, defines the word as marvelous, astonishing, inexplicable, beyond understanding. Alistair Begg defines the meaning of the word wonderful as that which requires God as its explanation. I like that. That which requires God as its explanation. That which cannot be made sense of unless God is part of the equation. It reminds me of the Taylor model in Fiddler on the Roof when Tevye at last agrees to give him his daughter Seidel in marriage. And he sings that song, Wonder of Wonders, Miracle of Miracles. Only God could have done this. When David slew Goliath, yes, that was a miracle. When God gave us manna in the wilderness, that was a miracle too. But of all God's miracles, large and small, the most miraculous one of all is the one I thought could never be. God has given you to me. That which requires God as its explanation. Wonder of wonders. Miracle of miracles. 
Looking broadly at biblical history, we may recall that one of the most defining events in the life of the nation of Israel, the exodus from Egypt, was replete with wonders from first to last. Speaking to all Israel at the end, as, as the end of his life drew near, Moses reminded them, For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard, and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. And when we apply this name wonderful to who we know Jesus is, we may recall the wonders that surrounded his birth, which are anticipating, which we are anticipating and celebrating during Advent and Christmas. The announcement by the angel Gabriel to Zechariah and Elizabeth that they also childless until their old age would become the parents of the promised forerunner of Messiah, John the Baptist. And then the announcement first to Mary and then to Joseph that, that she would become the mother of Messiah Jesus. And the call of God to astrologers in far-off Persia to come and worship the newborn king of the Jews. Elizabeth's recognition when she saw Mary that, that she was looking at the mother of the Savior. The appearance of angels to shepherds in the fields outside Bethlehem announcing the birth of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And we could go on, couldn't we? That's why we love Christmas so much. That's why we love the, the Christmas story so much is that it's just full of the miraculous, of the mysterious, of the wonderful. When we turn to his life and his ministry, we, we would recall the people who heard his teaching were amazed because he taught with authority. And when they saw his miracles, they gave glory to God. A man named Nicodemus, a member of the sect of the Pharisees, came to Jesus one night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Wonderful, that which requires God as its explanation. See, I could go on all day, and I, I promise I won't, but I could, I could go on all day reciting the evidences that the word wonderful is a, an apt name for Jesus. He exudes power and authority in his teaching. He evoked wonder at his miracles. He astonished onlookers at the cross. He inspired fear and reverence at his resurrection from the dead. He instilled awe and wonder among his disciples at his ascension into heaven. His name is indeed Wonderful. And as we think about the transformation that he works in our lives as we come to faith in him, we can say no less. 
What about that other name, counselor? It's, it's a simple word. It means one who advises, who provides counsel. But to say that Jesus is wonderful counselor means a whole bunch more than that he's good at counseling. The prophet Isaiah, seeing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit both the lineage and character of the coming Messiah, wrote, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, who was Jesse, is the father of King David of Israel. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In chapter 46, God's speaking through Isaiah Again, and he says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel, my counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purposes. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. To say that Jesus is counselor is to confess that he is eternal God, that the Spirit of God rests on him, that he is Lord, that when he speaks, his words will never fail. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said, but my words will never pass away. We can trust his wisdom. We can confidently obey his instruction. We can stake our lives on his counsel. Well, what if we combine the two? What if we are actually to understand that the name is Wonderful Counselor? In the 28th chapter, Isaiah said, The Lord of hosts is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. And it would mean that his teaching, his counsel, is not like anyone else's teaching and counsel. It would mean that because he is eternal God, that his counsel, his wisdom, his instruction comes to us with the full authority of God, that when we hear Jesus speaking, we are hearing the very word of God. And we would say, as Simon Peter said to Jesus, you alone have the words of eternal life. Well, why does this matter? It's all very interesting, but... That why does it matter? It matters simply because of this, that without Jesus, you and I live in great darkness. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
All of this also matters because there is no purely intellectual pathway to God. You can't think yourself to God. You can think that you are God. Probably be put away. But you can't think yourself to God. You can't meditate your way to God. You will never find God by looking inside yourself. To say that he is wonderful is to say that he is incomprehensible by means of reason alone. And that doesn't mean that we're to jettison our intellect, to kind of check our brains at the door. But it is to say that unless the incomprehensible, unapproachable God had graciously chosen to reveal himself to us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, we would never have known him. The psalmist wrote, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. And the apostle wrote to the Corinthians, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is only in his light, his light, that we are enabled to see light. See, unless the Spirit of God turns on the light in your heart, no matter how intelligent you may be, you will never understand him. You won't, you won't desire him. You won't receive him. You may know the name William Wilberforce, who was a, a member of British Parliament. Uh, the movie Amazing Grace was, was about his life. He was a Christian man. He was the leader of the abolition movement in England. And he was a close friend of William Pitt, who at one time was the prime minister of England. And Wilberforce had attempted on many occasions to introduce William Pitt to Jesus. And there was a day when they were in church together and a preacher named Richard Cecil preached this amazing sermon. And as they departed, Wilberforce in his journals recalls that that as he heard the message, his heart was lifted to heaven. And when he asked his friend, William Pitt, what'd you think? He said, it was the most boring thing I've ever heard. And on his deathbed, Wilberforce went to meet, to visit Pitt, and Pitt said, William, I'm so terribly afraid. No hope only despair. See, unless God turns on the light, unless God is gracious to turn on the light in your heart and mind, you will never know God. You will never have hope beyond the darkness. My prayer for you today, and especially in this Christmas season, is that the light will be turned on in your heart and that you will pray in the words of the old hymn, O come to my heart, Lord Jesus, there is room in my heart for you. 
And I want to close with the lyrics of another song that I haven't been able to get out of my mind this week. All week as I've been preparing this message. It was written by Lanny Wolf in 1984, and I'm dating myself here. It was recorded first, I believe, by Sandy Patty and Larnell Harris. It's a, a testimony of the songwriter of his experience of Jesus, the wonderful counselor. He promised us that he would be a counselor, a mighty God and a prince of peace. He promised us that he would be a father and that he would love us with a love that would not cease. Well, I tried him and I found his promises are true. He's everything he said that he would be. The finest words I know could not begin to tell just what Jesus really means to me. I stand amazed when I think that the king of glory should come to dwell within the heart of man. I marvel just to know he really loves me when I think of who he is and who I am. For he's more wonderful than my mind can conceive. He's more wonderful than my heart can believe. He goes beyond my highest hopes and fondest dreams. He's everything that my soul ever longed for, everything he's promised and so much more, more than amazing, more than marvelous, more than miraculous could ever be. He's more than wonderful. That's what Jesus is to me. My prayer for you, my prayer for all of us, is that in this season and in all the years to come, we would know more and more of how wonderful He really is. Let's pray together. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. We worship you. We bow before your greatness. Our minds cannot conceive all that you are. But we thank you that you have revealed all that we need to know. And we look forward to that day when we will see you in all of your glorious wonder. And we have that hope secure because of the cross, because our wonderful Savior chose to drink the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. And so, Lord, as we look back this Christmas season to your incarnation, your birth, and we celebrate the wonder of it all, may we also look to the cross and to your coming kingdom And would you fill our hearts with wonder and joy once again. We pray it in the name of our Savior, our soon-coming King, Jesus. Amen.